But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. Let's go to God again in prayer and ask him for his help this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we do ask that you would meet with us today, that you who are the God who saved uh, Paul, this apostle, on the road to Damascus, that the risen Christ who appeared to him there that day in that light, Lord, we ask that Jesus would be here today with us, that um, you would show us the Lord Jesus in this passage, that you would shine your illuminating light on this text, help us to understand it, shine your light into our hearts, help us to believe it, help us to trust in you, O Lord. Lord, we pray that um, the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight this morning. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it is great to be back with you. This is my third time preaching here at Zion, and um, I've preached a couple times the last few years. My family and I, who are here with me today, my family and I always enjoy coming to worship with you. There's a lot of interesting connections that we have to this church and that Tennessee Tech has to this church, and so it is a real joy to be with you today. And so, since I've been with you a few times, I feel like it's okay for me to reveal something about myself. Uh, you know, I've, I feel there's some trust that's been earned here. But the thing I want to tell you this morning is that I enjoy musicals, okay? I enjoy musicals. I enjoy, um, I hope that you're not going to tune out the rest of the sermon because of that. Um, but I enjoy Fiddler on the Roof, right? The Sound of Music, um, Singing in the Rain. These are a few of my favorite things. And uh, I hope that, I hope that you can understand that. Um, but it took me a little while to learn to enjoy musicals. The thing that, the, the hurdle that for me to get over was in a musical, it's just, it's strange to get used to people just breaking out into song in the middle of a conversation, right? Um, we don't usually see, you know, street gangs resolving their conflicts and their differences via song and dance as we do in West Side Story. Um, but that would be nice if that were the case in real life. Um, but breaking into song, as strange as that may seem to us in a musical, that's exactly what the Apostle Paul does as he's writing this letter to his son, Timothy, his son in the faith, Timothy. Um, Paul is writing to Timothy because Timothy is a young pastor in a town called Ephesus, and there are false teachers in this town. There's false teaching that's going in the town. A false gospel is being spread, and Paul is writing to Timothy in a very urgent way. He skips over his typical thanksgiving in, his, in this letter and just goes straight into addressing the false teachers that are in Ephesus. And as Paul does that, he takes a moment in our passage, the section that we've read this morning of chapter one, to reflect on his own conversion, his own call to service. And we see him breaking into song at, at the end of our passage in verse 17. He breaks out in literally into a song of praise, a song of praise to God. And this gives us the impression that the Apostle Paul, we, this is not the only time he does this, by the way. He does it again in, in Romans 11. He does it in other, in other books. And so this gives us the impression that, that Paul was someone who lived a life 
marked by praise. That Paul lived what we might say, he lived a life of doxology, a life of praise to God. And so here's the question that I want us to consider together this morning for ourselves. Do I live a life of doxology? Do I live a life that is marked by praise? And now I'm not suggesting that, um, you know, we, we break out singing holy, holy, holy in the middle of a Chick-fil-A, okay? Although you, that would probably be fine at Chick-fil-A. They probably wouldn't care. But um, that's not necessarily what I have in mind. But do we have hearts and minds that regularly turn to God in praise? Do we, is that something that, that is true of us throughout the day, throughout the week? Um, when we gather together on the Lord's Day here, does worshiping with God's people feel like a delight, something that we look forward to, something that we long for? Or does it feel sometimes like a chore, something that just needs to be done, something else that's on the calendar that we need to take care of? And so this morning, we're going to treat this text as something like a case study. What is it that causes the Apostle Paul to break into song, to break into praise? Where does this joyful praise come come from as he's sitting down writing a letter to Timothy? What is the secret? And so we have two points this morning regarding Paul's doxology. First, we're going to see, this will be a brief point, we're going to see Paul's doxology is fueled by commission. And secondly, we'll spend most of our time this morning considering how Paul's doxology is fueled by conversion. Okay, so first of all, Paul's doxology is fueled it's fueled by commission. Doxology that is fueled by commission. We see this in verse 12. Paul begins this, this section, our passage, the section of our passage this morning, by expressing thanks to Jesus. Right? He's listing three things specifically in verse 12 that he thanks Jesus for. He thanks that Jesus has given him strength, that Jesus has judged him faithful, that Jesus has appointed him to his service. And all of these things refer to Paul's commission. They refer to Paul's, his specific duty, his role as an apostle and as a missionary. And Paul seems absolutely amazed that he has received this calling from Jesus. As we see in our passage, his amazement has a lot to do with the type of man he was before his conversion, right? As who he was before he met Jesus. As he tells us in verse 13, he was a blasphemer, right? He, he, he declared false things about God. He blasphemed against the living God. He was a persecutor. He was a, a known persecutor of the church. Um, the book of Acts tells us that he was breathing threats and murder against the church. And finally, he was an insolent opponent. This is, means that he was an opponent who, who, not only did he oppose Christians, oppose the cause of Christ, and oppose the church, he did so in a way that was mocking and insulting and violent. And so Paul, we know, we know from the book of Acts, had rejected Jesus in Christianity. He had sought to arrest and pursue and even kill Christians. He was present at the stoning of Stephen, the first martyr in the book of Acts. And yet, despite all of those things, Jesus calls Paul to be his servant, to be his instrument, to be his missionary, to be his apostle for the sake of God's kingdom. And it's almost as if Paul is pinching himself here, right? He can't, he can't believe it. He can't believe that he gets the privilege of being a servant to Jesus, that he gets the privilege of being a missionary, an apostle, that such a sinner as him gets to be in this role serving the Lord Jesus. It fills him with gratitude. And it's this gratitude 
here in verse 12 that we see start to snowball and start to fuel this doxological exclamation he's going to have in verse 17. And it's just like in in one of those old musicals, right? That you see a character is so overwhelmed with emotion, so full of, of love, so full of happiness or joy or sorrow that they must break into song about it. They've got to sing about it. And it feels like that is what is happening with Paul as he writes this letter. So what can we learn from this? None of us in this room is, a, is an apostle. Um, most of us in this room are not called to full-time vocational ministry. So is this sort of gratitude in verse 12, is this something that's only reserved for those who are in full-time ministry, for those who are um, like me, working as a pastor on a campus? Absolutely not. Each one of us, each of you who, who are trusting in Jesus, each of you who is a Christian this morning has been equipped and commissioned by the Lord Jesus. Each of us has a calling to be an ambassador, to be a servant in this world, in this community, in this church. Consider the analogy that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 when he's talking about the church and how the church is designed to function by God. He's talking about He talks about it as a human body. He uses that analogy, right? That Christ is the head and we are his body, right? Jesus is is the head of the body. He's the head of the church. He's the one telling the body what to do. The body parts are the ones who are working, who are doing what the head tells them to do. So if you are in Christ, you have gifts. You have been equipped. You have a role. You have a function in the body of Christ. You have been commissioned to serve the Lord Jesus, both in this body, in this church, and in your community. And so perhaps one of the reasons that we feel our own Christian life growing stagnant and stale, perhaps one of the reasons we feel the, 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 um, not such a strong desire to praise the Lord is perhaps because we aren't using our gifts to serve Jesus in the church. We aren't using the gifts that he has given to us. We aren't, using, we aren't using us in the role and the function that he has designed us to fill. And so we don't get this opportunity that Paul shows here, this opportunity to be in awe that God would use someone like me to do his work. We don't get that opportunity because we don't allow ourselves to be used. We don't allow ourselves to be instruments in the Redeemer's hands. And so perhaps, or perhaps we've come to view service, we've come to view the work of the kingdom as something that's more of a burden than a blessing. For Paul, the fact that he is a servant of Jesus fills him with humility, it fills him with gratitude, and these are fueling his doxology in verse 17. They're fueling his worship. And so we see here in the beginning of this passage that his commission, his role, his work for Jesus and for Je- his his role as being an apostle and a missionary and a servant to the Lord Jesus is starting to fuel his worship, starting to fuel this gratitude is starting to fuel his worship. But secondly, our second point this morning, this is where we'll spend the majority of our time, the rest of our time, we see doxology is fueled by conversion. As we move through this passage, the rest of the passage, Paul is reflecting on the grace of Jesus in his life, on how Jesus saved him, how Jesus brought him to faith, brought him to himself. And there definitely feels, as you read this passage, you sort of feel this emotional escalation as Paul is reflecting on how Jesus has transformed him and changed him. And most of this passage 
is focused on his conversion, his salvation. And as we look over this passage, we really notice Paul highlighting two things. He's highlighting both the depth of his sin and he's highlighting the abundance of grace found in Jesus. And so let's consider each of those for a few moments this morning. First of all, we see the depth of his sin. As we've already seen in verse 13, Paul describes himself before he, the way Paul describes himself before he met Jesus as a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. But Paul goes to great lengths here to reflect on his condition, his life apart from Jesus. And Paul goes on to highlight the depth of his sin again as he mentions this trustworthy saying in verse 15, which is sort of the center of the passage. Um, Paul tells us that this saying is trustworthy. This, this, this saying is proven. It is credible. It, is, uh, it won't steer you the wrong way. It's worthy of full acceptance. We should have no doubts. We should have no hesitation about accepting this trustworthy statement, accepting this truth. And so what is the trustworthy saying that Paul delivers to us here? Simply this, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. If we were to try and summarize the gospel, to boil it down to its bare essentials, to boil it down to a nutshell, this is perhaps the best that we could do. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That is the good news of the gospel. That is the storyline of the Bible. That we, were, we could not save ourselves, that we were hopeless and helpless in our sin, that so Jesus had to come and make all things new. He had to come and reconcile us to a holy God. He had to come and reverse the curse that our parents, Adam and Eve, brought into this world, this curse on humanity, this curse on creation. But notice the, the phrase that Paul tacks on to the end of this trustworthy saying. He says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, and I'm the very worst one. That's what Paul is saying to Timothy. And we might be tempted to ask, is Paul being sincere here? Is he being serious? Is this, is this an example of false modesty or something? Does he really believe himself to be the foremost sinner? Now, we've already considered, you know, Paul's life before he met Jesus as being a, a persecutor of the church, and certainly that sounds pretty bad, right? That he was seeking to kill and murder the, uh, those who were following Jesus. But notice Paul doesn't say, I was the foremost sinner. He says, I am the foremost. Why, why would Paul say that? Paul isn't doing those things anymore. He's no longer persecuting the church. He's an, he's an evangelist. He's a missionary for the kingdom of God. Paul is no longer blaspheming. He is declaring the truths of the Lord, the truths of the gospel. We could understand if he said, look, I used to be the worst sinner ever. We might be tempted to agree with him, but Paul says, me, Paul the missionary, Paul the apostle, I am the foremost sinner. And what we see here is that Paul recognizes the depths of his sin, that he still struggles, that he knows that he has not outgrown his need for the Lord Jesus. Paul is not saying, listen, I used to be a wreck, I used to be a mess, and now I met Jesus, and now everything's fine, and now I don't struggle anymore, and now I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't have a problem with sin anymore. I got fine, and now I'm, I got saved, and now I'm fine. No, Paul says, I am the foremost sinner. I still desperately need Jesus each and every minute of the day. Paul the missionary, Paul the New Testament writer, Paul the apostle, 
is still utterly dependent on Jesus. And this should be true of all of us. This same sentiment should be true of all of us. You may not have persecuted the church before you were a Christian, uh, but you are well acquainted with how deep the sin in your own heart goes. You are more familiar with your own sin than anyone else's. I am more familiar with my sin than with anyone else's sin. There's a sense in which we can all say honestly, I am the foremost sinner because I have witnessed more sin from me than from anyone else in this world. Every hateful thought that has entered my mind, every harsh word that has come out of my mouth, every, every pang of envy in my heart, every covetous desire, every moment of puffed up pride, every moment of self-pity, those times of neglecting God, neglecting his word, those times of propping up idols in my heart, those bouts of selfishness, those, those moments of loving myself more than I love God, those moments of ignoring the needs of my neighbor. I know every single time that I've done those things. I have been witness to every time that I've done those things and much more. And you could say the same for yourself. And yet, it's so easy for us, we often overlook those things in our own lives and pay more attention to how we see them in other people. We pay more attention into how we see them out there, outside the church walls. And it should be true of all of us to be able to say, I am the worst sinner I know. But Paul even goes on in verse 16 to tell us that the reason he received mercy, the reason that Jesus saved him is because he was such a terrible sinner. That Jesus might display his perfect patience by saving Paul as an example for other people who would believe. Paul is saying here, I can receive, if I can receive mercy, then anyone can receive mercy. If Jesus can have mercy on me, then there's no one that he can't show mercy to. That's the kind of guy Paul is. He's presenting himself here really as a poster child of the transforming power of the gospel. And that's why he goes to such great lengths to write these things to Timothy. Because as I mentioned earlier, Timothy is wrestling He is struggling with false teachers in his town, with people who are declaring a false gospel, with people who are leading people, you know, teachers, false teachers who are leading people astray. And what Paul is doing here by writing about his own conversion, his own testimony, is he is reminding Timothy something very important about the true gospel, which is that the true gospel is able to transform a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent opponent, into a servant of Jesus. A false gospel does not do that. A false gospel cannot do that. And Paul has made quite a strong case here for the depth of his own sinfulness. And so perhaps at this moment, it's maybe hard to see, you know, this seems very negative so far. This seems that Paul is thinking about all these terrible things he's done. He's, he's thinking about the depth, how deep sin goes in his heart. Perhaps it's hard to see how this leads to a joyful song by the end of verse 17, how this leads to a song of praise at the end of our passage. But maybe this is where we start to miss out on the life of doxology. Maybe this is why Paul has a song of praise on his lips and we do not, because we don't like to think about our sin. We don't like to talk about our sin. It's often easier for us as Christians to focus on the sins of other people, to focus on how other people's sins have affected us and have have harmed us or uh, offended us. 
And we may be tempted to judge other folks and to self-righteously look down on other people for their sins while we sort of ignore the sins in our lives, while we make excuses for sins of our, in our lives. We blame our sin on other people. We blame them on our circumstances or we just pretend they don't exist. But what we're seeing here is that this is necessary. If we are going to live a life of doxology, if we are going to sing a song of praise like the Apostle Paul, we're going to have to think about our sin. Because if we miss this, if we fail to take our sin seriously and see how deep it really goes, then the next part of the gospel is not gonna seem as sweet to us. Unless we see clearly who we are apart from Christ and who we are um, according to the Bible as sinful, sinful beings, sinful people rebelling against a holy God, unless we see that about ourselves, we're not gonna see the sweetness of the gospel. Um, when I was in seminary, uh, me and several of my friends were really into this TV show Lost, which you may remember from several years ago. And, you know, one of my favorite things about that show is each week we would watch it, you know, on Monday night or Tuesday night or whatever day it was. And the next morning at school in seminary, we would all be discussing it, right? And, and if you're familiar with the show, it's a show with a lot of mystery and intrigue. And we would always be sort of exchanging our theories and discussing what might be happening next. And occasionally another student would walk up and they would hear us talking about this TV show. Maybe you've had an experience like this too. And we would be talking about it and the student would say, the other student would say, oh, I've never watched that. Maybe I'll tune in this week. Maybe I'll just jump right in here in the middle of season three or four or whatever. And we would say, no, 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 you can't do that. You can't do that because none of this is gonna make sense to you. You're gonna be totally confused. Um, All the revelations, they're not gonna have any meaning for you. You don't know these characters. You don't know the background. You don't know the history. You know, maybe you've had a, 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 a similar experience with like a favorite book series. You know, someone says, you're telling someone about a book series you love, and they say, well, I think I might just jump right in the middle. And you say, no, absolutely not. You can't do that. It's not gonna make sense to you. You're not gonna appreciate it. You gotta start at the beginning. You've gotta go back to the beginning and start there. And that's the same thing we're seeing here, that if we really don't understand our sin problem, if we really don't understand who we are, then we're not gonna understand the sweetness of the grace that Jesus offers us. We're not gonna see, if we don't see the depth of our own sin, we're not gonna see the abundance of mercy and grace that we have received from the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel isn't really gonna seem like good news to us unless we see the depths of our sin. The gospel is not gonna dazzle and delight us unless we understand who we are. We have to see the depths of our own sin. We have to see just how hopeless our condition is apart from Christ before we can really appreciate the sweetness of the grace that Jesus offers to us. So thinking about and confessing and repenting of our sin will actually fuel our worship, as strange as that may sound, but only if we are seeking refuge in the Lord Jesus, only if our sins have been wiped away by the blood of Jesus. And that's the second part here of Paul's testimony of his conversion. He talks about the depth of his sin, and then he talks about the abundance of the grace that's found in Jesus. Look with me again at verses 13 and 14. He says, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Jesus Christ. Paul is saying, but I received mercy. He almost can't believe it, that God had mercy on him. God didn't give him the punishment that he deserved. God had mercy. God spared him. 
And he also says, he goes on to say, that the grace of our Lord overflowed for me. Not only did God have mercy, but his grace overflowed for me. It was a cup running over, more than was necessary. It was abundant. Paul is saying, I was pardoned for my sins, but it was more than that. Paul is saying, I was forgiven, but it was more than that. He received far more than he deserved. He was adopted. He was made a son. This man who was a blasphemer, this man who was a uh, murderous persecutor of Christians, God loved him. God saved him. God made him his own child. He's no longer an enemy of God. He was a son of God. And this is where Paul's doxology comes from. This is what's driving and motivating his praise, that Jesus came to save sinners, even the very worst sinners, even sinners like Paul. And maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking, yeah, I can understand why Paul would be breaking out into praise. That's a great story. That's a great testimony. That's a great conversion. But my testimony, my conversion is really nowhere near that exciting. Mine's nothing like that. Maybe you're like me. Maybe you grew up in the church. Maybe you were converted as a kid. Maybe um, you weren't saved from a life of persecuting Christians. You were saved from a life of, of stealing candy from the convenience store or whatever. That's, that's what I did. Um, we're not all going to have a story like Paul. We're not all going to have a conversion story like, thi- like this. And so that's why Paul says in verse 16 that his, his conversion is there to be an example to us. Paul is saying his life is like a neon sign advertising the patience of Jesus and the grace of God. And when we look at Paul, we're meant to think, wow, this Jesus really can save anyone. This Jesus really can make anyone clean. There is no one who is too sinful to be redeemed. There is no one so bad that they can't be brought into the kingdom of God's people. And just hearing Paul's story ought to encourage us to praise because we serve a God who takes persecutors and turns them into missionaries. We serve a savior that can take a fierce enemy and make him into a beloved son. But it's also important for us not to sell our own testimony short. Not to sell the story of God's grace in your life short. Because you may not have been persecuting Christians. You may not have been persecuting the church but you were still sinning against a holy God. You you were headed on a path for destruction. You were a slave to your sin. You were hopeless and helpless. There was nothing you could do to save yourself, but you received mercy. The grace of the Lord overflowed for you in the person and work of Jesus. And you were being transformed And that God who is at work in you, this God who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion. This is the good news that is driving and motivating Paul's doxology. And this is what can drive us to doxology as well. So why is it that we struggle to live a life of doxology? Why is it hard for us sometimes to live a life that is marked by prayer, by praise? Well, it's not because the good news isn't good enough. Perhaps it's the same problem that the church in Ephesus struggled with in Revelation chapter 2. That we have forgotten our first love. That we have forgotten how sweet the love of Jesus has been in our lives. We've forgotten the faithfulness 
of the Lord Jesus to us through the hills and the valleys of our lives. Um, there's a book I've, I've been reading recently called The Imperfect Pastor. Um, so it felt like a really book, a book written just for me, right? Um, by this guy named Zach Eswine. And here's what he writes in this. And this is directed towards pastors, but I think it can be, I think it can fit any, any Christian. But here's what he says. He says, do you, re- do you remember what it was like before you desired vocational ministry? You had no training. You were, li- you were unknown in the world. And yet Jesus was lovely to you. He had saved you. He had communicated his love to you. He was all treasure, true, pleasurable, satisfying, and altogether, altogether beautiful. He was your portion. He was your desire. Do you remember what it felt like when you first became a Christian? Do you remember how sweet Jesus seemed to you? How you couldn't believe that he had saved someone like you? How real and fresh his grace felt in your life. It was life-changing. And yet, as we go through the everydayness of our lives, it's so easy to forget. It's so easy to forget. As you look through the Bible, you see time and time again, God's people, it's so easy for us to forget. And God is constantly, especially in the Old Testament, he's telling his people, remember, remember, remember what I've done for you. Remember how I saved you out of Egypt. Remember how I have been with you. Remember. And so Paul's secret to living a life of doxology was not to let himself forget, to remind himself, to tell the story of how Jesus had saved him over and over. If you read the book of Acts, you see Paul on three different occasions standing before kings and governors and standing and sharing his testimony and sharing with them how Jesus had transformed his life. We see him here in this letter reminding Timothy, telling his story, the story of God's grace in his life yet again. Reminding others, reminding himself the story of how Jesus had saved him. To tell of how he used to be, of who he was, of how he met Jesus, and of who he became in Christ. And if you are in Christ, you have a story just like that. You have a story of God's grace, how God's grace gripped you, how it saved you, how it is transforming you even today, even now, into the image of his son. If your spiritual life is stagnant, if praising God feels like a chore, it's possible you've forgotten either the depths of your sin or you have forgotten the abundance of grace that was given to you in the Lord Jesus Christ. These things, along with Paul's all that someone like him could be in service to Jesus and, and his kingdom. That's what's fueling Paul's doxology. This is the good news which can revive our cold and bored hearts. And the good news for us is that this same Christ, this same Christ who came into the world to save sinners, this same Christ who met Paul on the road to Damascus and transformed him forever, this same Christ who transforms his enemies into his servants. This same Christ who overflows with love and grace. This same Christ who is still in in the business of saving sinners like us. This is the Christ that we have gathered together to worship this morning. Let us lift our hearts and our voices to him in praise. Amen. Let me pray for us.
Gracious Heavenly Father, I do thank you that you sent your son Jesus, that you sent him into the world to save sinners. Sinners like Paul, sinners like those of us in this room. Lord, I pray that you would remind us of this amazing story that each of us who are trusting in Christ has. And that this story would, would give us, with this reflecting on our own story of grace, reflecting on how you have um, saved us, how you have called us to serve you in your church and in this community. I pray that you would give us a song in our hearts, a song on our lips of praise to you. For you are good and you do good. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.